Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. It's good to be here with y'all. Wherever the church is, the Lord is right there with them. And the praise team were singing, Worthy, God is worthy of all praise. He's got to be praised. And we want that job, right? We want to be able to be the ones to praise Him. So we get that privilege today. Uh, now stand as we read the word. Uh, we'll be reading John chapter 17, starting at verse 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine. All mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, not, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them the, your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one for they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them in the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, we're all here gathered together 
in the world, but you said we're not of the world. Help us, Father, to be different from the world. Help us to reflect your image well, to shine our light. That's our job. That's our calling. That's our joy. Help us do that to do that well through your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the children, don't go anywhere. It's not children's church. Stay here. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I bring your word to your people. Lord, allow me to speak with your voice. But more than your voice, Lord, let me speak with your words. God, that the things that I would say this morning would be filled with your Holy Spirit, anointed with holy unction, and God, the words that I speak, Lord, that they would go out, touch the hearts of the people here, and that they would not come back empty. Lord, I pray right now that what I say this morning, well, that it would change the people here. And Lord, that it would change me as well. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I am incredibly excited about a lot of the things, all the things that are going on here at Oak Ridge. One of the things that I'm the most excited about is our youth group. I'm excited because I have a youth minister, which means that I don't have to be the youth minister. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Youth ministry is one of those things that I didn't prepare myself for. I never really saw myself like that. I wasn't a youth even when I was a youth. Like I didn't, was not comfortable with teenagers. Uh, but then when I got into ministry, I realized that that's a huge part of the job. And uh, I can remember the first year that I went to summer camp many, many years ago. Um, and, and, and I realized very quickly that my time in the Marine Corps and my time at summer camp we're very similar. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the Marines or about youth, but huge portions of it are trying to get people to do things that they should do anyway, right? Um, and I'm not talking about spiritual things. Like, we're not even talking about spiritual things. We're talking about bathing. <laughs> like, Coming to Jesus is awesome, but bathing, I just take that sometimes. Huge amounts of my time were spent saying, hey, have you taken a shower today? Why haven't you taken a shower today? Or yesterday? Or the day before that? <laughs> or at all? 
Put on sunscreen, drink water, eat the food that's here. But I don't like the food. I don't care that you don't like the food. Eat the food anyway. And so now that I have a youth minister, he gets to do all that stuff, and I just get to be the cool guy that's there with them. It's great. One of the worst parts about taking kids to camp, though, is the, is the movement, the transition there and the transition back, because there is this, this existential dread of leaving somebody. Because we always, because you always have to stop to go to the bathroom, and everybody gets out of the car, and they all wander all over the place, and it's like that with youth ministry too. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. yeah, same thing. Taking Marines to Camp Bullis, taking kids to camp, same thing. You stop at the Bucky's, they all want to go out, they all want to buy beef jerky, they all want to do that stuff, and getting them back into the vehicle while you're doing head counts, right? You're doing head counts constantly, and all that's going through your head is, "Don't let me leave one." I don't want to lose one. Please, please don't make me do that. Make that call to a parent. I left your kids at the Bucky's. I'm so sorry. Home Alone was funny, but that's not a funny call. (laughs) And in essence, this morning, we're seeing Jesus with that same heart. Jesus is praying to his father. He's getting ready to leave his disciples on earth. And he's praying to his father to maintain his disciples. Right? That his disciples would do the things that he has been preparing them to do. He's like, I've spent three years prepping these guys and telling these guys and talking to them. And, and, and Lord, just, just help them to get through this. Help them to do the basic things, the important things that I've called them to. That's the heart of Jesus. One of the reasons that we're studying and spending so much time on the high priestly prayer of Jesus is because it describes his heart. It helps us to know who he is and what he wants for us. Because as we've said several times now, what we believe and who we are is described by our prayers. You want to know what somebody cares about? Look at what they pray for. And by studying our our prayer this morning, we get to see what it is that Jesus wants. Last week, he talked about his relationship with God. And so we got to see what was important to Jesus about his relationship with his God. And, and, And so we got to see kind of how Jesus related to the Father. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus, what he wanted for his disciples so the first thing that he, that he kind of comes out the door with is he, he begins to talk about his disciples' relationship to God, who they are in God. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. Now, the, the, this is pregnant with meaning. There is so much into this. There's so much depth in this prayer of Jesus. He, he doesn't pray uh, just a simple prayer. Sometimes when we pray, we Our prayers prayers become repetitive and and they become kind of simplistic. But when Jesus prays, everything that he says has deep meaning. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave to me. And here we see wrapped into this all of the theology of calling that we've seen throughout the book of John. From the very beginning of John, we have been told that those who come to Jesus are those who have been called by the Father, that the sheep hear his voice and they respond to him, that so many left because they were not ones that were called to begin with. And to those that 
God had called into the presence of Christ. Jesus had manifested the Father. We talked about this last week, how Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the effulgence of God's glory. These people who had for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have been asking God, show us your glory, God. Show us your glory. Now in the presence of Christ, they can see the glory of God. God, Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory, and he has revealed it to those who have been called by God. He goes on and says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So what principles can we draw out of this initial introduction to his prayer for the disciples? Well, the first thing is that Jesus refers to the disciples as the ones that have been called by God. See, Christ is not interceding with his Father for the world or even for the Jewish people. He's praying and interceding for his disciples. This can be kind of hard for us to, to understand sometimes. After all, John 3.16 says, For God loved the world. But there is something else that's going on here. God does love the world. But Christ intercedes Christ saves those who accept him. That's a hard reality. It's a hard reality because many, many, many people did not respond to Jesus. Throughout his ministry, we saw thousands of people come and want to be near Jesus. They wanted to receive the blessings of Jesus. They wanted to hear the teachings of Jesus. But when it came time to actually follow Jesus... Now, there was always something else to do. Oh, let me go and bury my father, Jesus. To, that, to which Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Jesus, I want to follow you. Oh, but you need to give up everything. Sell all your possessions. Oh, well, I've got a lot of possessions. Over and over again, Jesus will amass a following and then give them a challenge. And only a very few will respond to it. Brothers and sisters, never confuse the love of God for some kind of universal, uncritical acceptance of all people. It's not. Over and over again, Jesus tells us the way is narrow. The gate is small. There are many, many people who on the last day will say, Lord, Lord, and yet he will say, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoer. This is a hard reality, but it's a truth. God sent his son to die for all who would accept him. See, I need you to understand this. The call to discipleship is not about perfection. The disciples were demonstrably not 
perfect. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see them not getting it, messing it up. Ultimately, they're going to abandon him. They are not perfect. They don't have full knowledge. But what they do have is a deep desire to be with him, a commitment to him that transcends their mistakes. The call to discipleship is not about perfection. It's about, it's about a marked sacrifice and a commitment. The Christian life is not about a feeling or receiving a blessing. It's about a commitment to be changed by Christ in the way that you follow him. Well, Jesus has established who the disciples are. They are the ones that have been called by the Father into relationship with him who have decided to follow him. This balance between human responsibility and God's sovereignty where our actions determine who we are and our calling determines our actions. This is who the disciples are. Well, what, is God, what does Jesus ask God for them? He begins to say, I am no longer in the world. But they, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Well, that's a mouthful. There's a lot going on right there. The first thing is that Jesus is leaving. He's coming to his Father and saying, I am leaving your people here. There's, a, there's a, a note of excitement in it, too. He's returning to his father, to the glory that he had before the beginning of the world. He is going to be reunited with the Trinity. This eternally loving relationship between father and son and spirit in perfect unity and perfect love. And his prayer is that God will reveal himself to these disciples so that they will be able to live in love with each other. He desires community for them. Brothers and sisters, anybody who's come into my office and talked to me knows that one of the first things that I'm going to ask you is, are you in community? I'll ask you, are, are you reading your Bible? Oh, yeah, I'm reading my Bible. Are you praying? Oh, yeah, I'm praying. Are you in community? That's a hard one. Because, see, community means so much more than did I pass somebody in the hallway at church, smile and say hi on my way to the car to leave this place. Community, well, that's a different animal. Community is about living out the love that Christ has for the Father and that the Father has for the Son and that the Father and the Son have for the Spirit. It's about vulnerability and mutual submission in, in a word it's messy community is really 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 messy it's hard to be unified with somebody who you actually know that's the challenge right it's easy to be friendly with somebody whose faults you don't know you're walking through your neighborhood Hey, John, how's it going? Doing really good, Tom. Have a good day. That's easy community. 
But having somebody sit in your living room and talk to you about the mistakes that they've made or the, way that, the ways that they feel that you've hurt them, that gets messy sometimes. And yet Jesus is calling his disciples to that kind of unity, to be transparent about the sins that they have committed and the struggles that they're having, to forgive one another and love one another, to be unified. Well, what else is he what else is he praying for? Well, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have, that they may ha that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, there's several things going on here. First thing is he wants the disciples to remain faithful. See, it's, it's not enough that they be unified. We can be unified over many different things. We can be unified over football. There's some of you guys that are Dallas Cowboys fans. I don't know why, but okay. Conceptually, intellectually, I can understand that. Some of you are Texas A&M fans. Exactly. You're called classy people who are wise, okay? <laughs> it's easy to be unified around things that ultimately don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I have friends that are watching this that are going to judge me for this, but there is literally nothing substantive that will happen if Texas A&M wins a football game. We're about to celebrate the great American secular festival of the Super Bowl. Guess what? Regardless of which group of millionaires comes out on the other side of that as the winner, your life will not change. And yet, there will be people who will riot in the street and turn over buses and light them on fire based on the outcome of that game. Sometimes they, they riot because they win. Sometimes they riot because they lose. But whatever the reason is, they are unified around something that ultimately doesn't matter. It is easy for us often to unify over less important things. That's not what Christ is calling us to. He's not calling us to unify around a political agenda or around a cultural identity. He is calling us to unify around the Holy Spirit. He's calling us to unify around our identity in God. Because, see, here's the reality. If God is the thing that we are unifying around, then all of the other lesser things fall away. Because we are unified around God, I can be friends with somebody who roots for the Dallas Cowboys. That's called the peace that passes understanding. If God is at the center of what we are doing, then we can unify. But this is way easier than it sounds. See, because we have some very serious disagreements with other people about God. You can drive up and down this road and you will find people meeting on a Sunday morning, calling themselves Christians, with whom we disagree seriously about the identity, nature, and work of God. So if we're supposed to be unified with them, how does that work? 
Let me tell you what unity doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, oh, we're all the same. We're all the same. It's going to be okay. We'll get together. We'll sing a song and it'll be good. Unity does not mean taking our differences and dissolving them and finding this kind of lowest common denominator Christianity that we can kind of rally around. Like, I think Christianity is really just about being awesome to one another. I call it a Keanu Reeves Christianity. Just be excellent to one another. Are you excellent to each other? There's some of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. No idea. If you haven't seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's like half of y'all are like, what are you talking about? That's not the kind of unity that Christ is calling us to. He's calling us to unity around substantive Christianity. And that means that sometimes we're going to be more unified than others. There's going to be some people that we are more in unity with, right? And so how do we think about that? I want you to think about it in terms of like like a series of concentric circles, There's some people way out here on the edge that I can agree that we shouldn't murder each other. And we can cooperate in not murdering each other. But as we get closer towards the center, our agreement needs to grow. We go once a month down to the church under the bridge, San Antonio Church of Hope. That is composed of people from a bunch of different denominations. On any given Sunday, you're going to go down there. You're going to see us, a fairly conservative, kind of straight-laced Baptist group. There's going to be a Pentecostal guy up preaching a sermon, okay? You're going to see a bunch of Christian bikers. I don't know who they are, but they're awesome, and they're in their, their, their like, leathers, and they got their motorcycles, and you got, a, like, a Methodist church over here. Sometimes we got some Lutherans, and then there's, like, cats and dogs that show up from all over the place, Okay? Now, we can have unity with them in showing the love of Christ to the people that are underneath the bridge. We can come together to feed homeless people, but we're not going to go plant a church together because we disagree on what church means. And so as we come closer and closer into agreement, we can become more and more intimate and our lives become more and more what Christ is talking about here. Until we get finally to what we have right here. This is a group of men and women who have committed to live together in the covenant of church membership. Because we are unified around central important issues. What baptism is. What the Lord's Supper is. What a church should look like. But even within this group, we're going to have some differences, right? There's some of us that are going to disagree over issues of theology. And so in order for us to maintain unity, sometimes we have to realize that there's some issues that don't ultimately make that much of a difference. That's the key to this. And this is a Holy Spirit-driven exercise as we try to figure out what issues matter and which issues, while important, are not worth breaking fellowship over. The way we kind of describe those are issues that we hold tightly and issues that we hold loosely. At this church, some issues that we hold tightly, the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe that Scripture is God-breathed and sufficient for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We build everything we do here around Scripture. We believe in salvation by faith through grace. We believe in baptism by immersion after a profession of faith. 
These are things that we hold tightly. Then there's some stuff that maybe we hold a little bit loosely. What the end times is going to be like. Man, I don't know. We got different ideas about how that's going to go. Some of us think that all of us are going to get raptured before Christ returns. Some of us think that there's going to be a rapture and then a tribulation. Some of us think all kinds of different things. That's okay. We can sit down and we can talk about those things without breaking fellowship over them. Christ's call is for us to be unified. His call is for us to be unified around the gospel. And most importantly, his call is for us to be unified around the gospel in joy. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are called to joy. We should be the most joyful of all people. Right? We are the only people in the world that have no reason to fear death. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in this world that ultimately can harm us. When the stars stop burning, we will still have an eternity in the presence of our God who loved us and died for us. If you can't be joyful about that, what on earth are you going to be joyful about? Sometimes we get confused because we don't really understand joy. We confuse joy and happiness. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is an emotion that we have at certain times. Sometimes it's linked to chemicals in our brains. Sometimes it's linked to events or music, things like that. Something goes well at work. Something goes well with our children. We're happy. My daughter puts a a drawing that she's made for me in front of me, and I feel happiness about it. But joy is a deeper, deeper thing. Joy in its deepest is conformity to the will of God. It is an understanding that when God said that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that that means us. And so that even when things do not necessarily conform to what we think would be good, our allegiance to the deeper goodness of God means that we can accept them. It is contentment in the face of adversity. It's acceptance in the face of crisis. These are the things that God is calling his disciples to. To unity around the gospel in joy. It's important. Because the world that the disciples are being sent into is unbearably hostile to them. In fact, Jesus begins to talk about that. He begins to tell them that the world will not accept them. That things are going to go bad. He says, I've given them your word. Talking to God, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. See, if we are united with Christ, if we're united around the gospel, if you're we're united with each other around the priorities of God, then we are going to be at odds with a world that hates God. If we're in an evil world that worships itself and we're worshiping God, we're going to look different. We're going to look like aliens and weirdos. And so God calls us through Christ 
to live as aliens in this world. But understand this. Jesus doesn't want God to remove them from the world. He doesn't say, he's not like, I was telling Andy about, uh, about that great American classic movie, Predator, <laughs> right, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right, like where he's sitting there and he's like, get to the chopper, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I've come to take you out of the world. He's not saying, I'm coming here to rescue you and pull you home. No. Jesus leaves us in the fight. In fact, all of these things are meant for mission. Right? We're empowered and we're unified and we're joyful because God is sending us out on mission into a broken world. Not as victims, not as people that are hiding and trying to survive, but as victorious soldiers in the army of the living God. Going out to rescue those who are broken. All, all of Christ's prayers are centered around that issue of mission. Now we are called. It says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, we have an enemy here. One who works against us. One who isn't quite defeated quite yet. And yet Jesus, over and over again, calls us to fight. And how is this going to happen? Well, he, he says that he wants God to sanctify them in his word. Sanctify them in the truth and his word is true. It's one of those old religious words, sanctify. Christ wants us to be sanctified. To be sanctified is to be made holy. What does that mean? To be holy is to be set apart. To be other than the world. We're told as Isaiah comes into the temple and sees God arrayed in his majesty, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is set apart. And we are to be set apart. We are to be made different than the world that we live in. To be changed. To be sanctified. But we're sanctified through the word of God. We're sanctified because God sent his son into the world as his word. He lived as one of us and he, he died for us and he taught us. And so we're changed and made holy by the word, by listening to the commands that Jesus has made and by accepting the sacrifice that he made for us. And this makes us different. This is critical. If we, if we know him and if we love him, then we're going to look differently to the world around us. Now, now understand this. This doesn't mean different like I've got a Jesus fish on the back of my car. Okay? It doesn't mean different like, like I have hashtag blessed on all of my posts. It means different in that I reflect 
the God that this world hates. Okay? That means that I forgive when most people wouldn't forgive. It means that I speak words of love and truth when most people embrace lies and darkness. It means that I am an aroma of the gospel to the people around me by the way that I live and the way that I work and the way that I act. For many of you guys, you know what this looks like in your jobs. You know how hard this can be to be an aroma of the gospel when you're surrounded by pagans, by people who want to tell jokes you don't want to tell or look at things you don't want to look at or talk about things that you don't want to talk about or to have business practices that you don't want to practice. It's hard to be an aroma for the gospel because you know what Paul says about the aroma of the gospel? For some people, it's the aroma of salvation. Some people will come across that, that gospel-centered aroma and be like, oh, this is amazing. I, love, I, want, I want this for myself. Some people, though, it is the aroma of death. For some people, they're going to smell that gospel and it smells like hypocrisy and it smells like trauma and it smells like betrayal and it smells like judgment. And you'll be rejected. But here's the reality. How people respond to the aroma of the gospel is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to be the aroma of the gospel. Finally, he tells his father that he is consecrating himself so that they will be sanctified through him. Now we got another one of those words, right? Consecrate. Now what does consecrate mean? Consecrate means to make something holy through sacrifice. Jesus is consecrating himself. He is preparing himself to make his disciples holy. Now what on earth does that mean? What it means is he is picturing himself as the sacrifice. He is the priest preparing himself to be the sacrifice that will sanctify the people. He is declaring to God, make these people holy through the sacrifice that I'm about to give. Because brothers and sisters, his final act will be the sacrifice that makes all of his previous teaching and ministry functional. It is the key that turns in the lock and then everything begins to turn. Everything that Jesus has taught makes sense because of his sacrifice. All of the fulfillment Jesus wants his disciples to be sanctified in the truth through his sacrifice and through God's word. This is Jesus' heart. Jesus wants his disciples to go out on mission, unified in joy and sanctified by the truth. If somebody were to come to Jesus and say, what do you want for your disciples? That's what he would say. He's praying for his disciples at that time. But his desire for them applies to us. We are the disciples, brothers and sisters. We are the disciples. At this time, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. But now he stands before the altar of God at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, making intercession for us and praying this prayer for us. Crying out to God, make them unified. Fill them with your joy. 
Give them love for one another. Sanctify them. That's the prayer of the heart of Christ before the altar of God. Brothers and sisters, we are the people called out of a wicked and sinful world according to the will and the plan of God, and he is sending us out on mission for him. We will be put in danger by the gospel. And his prayer is the same for us that it was for them. See, he has made each of us holy through his sacrifice, and now he prays that God will sanctify us through God's word. But that doesn't just happen. To be sanctified by the sacrifice of Christ, we have to accept him. It means we have to come to know who he is. We have to take a moment and we have to think about Christ and, and we have to offer ourselves up as a sacrifice and say, God, I cannot do this anymore. I need you to come into my life and change me. It begins there, but it doesn't end there, brothers and sisters, because you see, once we have come to know Christ and once we've been transformed by him, then we have to spend the rest of our life allowing Christ to change us into the image of his Father. We do that by dwelling on his word, by praying to him, by having community with one another. We do that by allowing God to change us moment by moment, day by day. And so I want to leave you this morning with this question. Does this describe you? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Not did you walk a, an aisle, not did you grow up in the church, not were you baptized at eight years old. Do you accept him as your Lord and your Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? And if you did, are you allowing him to change you? Do you look more like him today than you did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that? Are you doing the things that you need to do to allow him to transform you into the image and the likeness of his son? Or is everything else more important than that? Are you spending time with him in his word? Are you spending time with him in prayer? Are you spending time with his people? Are you committing to follow him? It's easy for us to claim to be disciples, to pretend to be disciples. It's a totally different thing for us to live like we're disciples. And so I want to encourage you this morning to live the life that Christ died to bring you. To live out the life that he sanctified you for. This is my prayer for you. See, Christ prayed for you and he is still praying for you. Will you follow him? Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord,
Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.